Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. That's all true. Yeah, and I am Rich Kimball. What a coincidence. Hi there. Welcome into Downtown, the podcast, episode number 125. Joined in studio by Carrie Haskell, and we're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll talk with a couple of talented writers this time around in the second half of the podcast. Our friend Colin Fleming talks about some uh, autumnal pop culture classics that might be worthy of your uh, viewing and listening. But we get things underway by welcoming back to the podcast the talented writer Jeff Perlman. Uh, Last time out, wrote about the USFL and his wonderful book, Football for a Buck. He has had nine New York Times bestsellers through the year, and his newest is an absolutely terrific book on the Lakers of the late 90s and early 2000s called Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the Crazy Years of the Laker Dynasty. It was a fascinating time in pro sports history, and, uh, well, the story behind the story, even more fascinating, as only Jeff Perlman can tell it. Here's our conversation with Jeff on downtown the podcast the book is so good last time you were on by the way i have to mention uh, we, when you were on talking about football for a buck your your analysis of donald trump remains i think the most spot-on analysis anybody has done of him i wish i had a bigger voice back then i really do i swear to god i was i really wanted people to listen and i i mean, how many times i have to say during that that he ruined the usfl that he was a con man that he lied about it all I said it over and over again, but I'm only one person and one small sports book author. So here we are. Yeah, yeah well, exactly. All right, now you've written about the Lakers before in your, your wonderful book, Showtime. What was what was different? If you could pick one thing that differentiated the Showtime teams from these teams of the late 90s and early 2000s, what would it be? Oh, boy. I mean, I, think when, I don't think there's ever been a guy like Kobe as far as like Magic Johnson came, he was young, he was out of Michigan State, but man, he was all about winning and team first. And I'm not saying Kobe wasn't all about winning; he certainly became that way. But when he arrived, it was a lot of ego, and it was a lot of youthful bravado, and it was a lot of trying to find a voice when you're only 18 years old and you don't know what that even means. And the friction from the beginning was Shaq, and Shaq nicknamed him uh, Sobo from the start. I mean, there's just Kobe was a different sort of bird. You know, you could say Shaq had a lot of magic in him, the persona and the, you know, like the, the, just a larger-than-life sort of sense of giving and joy. But Kobe, there's nobody on those Lakers, those earlier Lakers, like Kobe in any way, shape, or form. It's just different. And as you point out, too, in your, your forward to the book, uh, this book is of a specific time in Kobe Bryant's life, and it was a different Kobe than he would eventually become. Well, very. Um, I mean, the Kobe who tragically died, um, you know, he was father of four and, and he was a businessman and a coach and an Academy Award winner and this really well put together guy. And the Kobe who was sort of doing this era could be really aloof and never really got to know his teammates and viewed everyone as a rival and just wanted to rip your head off. And, um, He's just a different, altogether person from young Kobe. Compli- kind of complicated Kobe. What that? Who is this guy, and what is he trying to be, and why does he act this way? To the Kobe who we saw, you know, bragging about his daughter, daughters. 
So it's it's really sad. I mean, the whole that doesn't feel like he's gone, but it sucks. The seeds for this Laker dynasty were, were sown even before Kobe's arrival. Um, I found a particularly interesting part of the story to be the return of Magic Johnson. And, man, what a what a dysfunctional unit that was with Nick Van Exel and Cedric Sabalos, who seems to be maybe one of the worst teammates a person could ever have. <laughs> he's not a top ten best. <laughs> I mean, it'd be funny if you showed up where you work and you're like, hey, everyone. I have a new nickname for myself. I want you to call me Chice after franchise because I'm the franchise around here. Like, try that at the dentist's office or, your, you know, whatever, wherever you work. You get laughed off, but he nicknames himself Chice. And you remember, I tell me, I mean, I wonder if it's just me. Like, when Magic came back in that 95-96 season, it was huge. Like, don't you remember it as kind of huge? Oh, yeah, because what, we didn't know what it was about. We were still trying to figure out what it meant to have uh, – to have someone be HIV positive, and we didn't really have a complete understanding of of how you got to that point where you could play again. And yeah, it was it was the biggest story in sport when he came back. And it, it almost feels like it never happened, but he comes back, and you know, Kareem isn't there, and Worthy isn't there, Byron Scott, all these guys are gone, and he's basically stuck with Nick Van Exel, Eddie Jones, and Chice, and. <laughs> It just doesn't work. Like it's just, he's like, what the hell is going on here? It's like a person now my age, I'm 48, whining about millennials. Like He was basically early into whining about millennials. and The comeback was kind of a flop, and, and everyone was sick of each other. And Magic retires, and that's when Jerry West really freaking ramps it up and works his Magic, and somehow he's able to get Shaq and Kobe when there was no reason to really think he'd be able to get either of them at the same time. And you talk about this a lot. Kobe's such an interesting guy. Young Kobe was so determined, so focused, but also a bit of an outsider, too. And as you point out, a lot of that comes from from spending so many of his formative years in Italy. And even at Lower Marion High School, he didn't always fit in with his peers terribly well. No, he was a different kind of guy. And you can look at his background, and maybe it's Freudian a little bit, but he basically, um, he basically, you know, was a kid who was, brought up in Italy with a famous dad and he was, you know, a black kid and not a black world at all. He moves, you know, as a teenager, as a young teenager, back to the suburbs of Philly, you know, very leafy and wealthy. And again, one of the few African-American faces and the dad is famous and he's a great basketball player. Goes to the senior prom with Brandy, who was a huge star at the time. And he's just this like, He's this not fully developed person. You know, most of us, we go through high school and we have that moment where we get our driver's license and learning to drive, we hit a pole and we ask a girl out or we ask a boy out and they say no and we're embarrassed and we have toilet paper stuck to our shoe and we don't see it there. And, you know, we get an F in class and it's all hard. Go through those things because you need to go through those things. Like you, you have to go through those things. He didn't go through a lot of those things. He was young and protected and gifted. Um, and when he arrived in the NBA, he arrived like someone who's always been young and protected and gifted, and he was awkward. So um, it was a, a, a real-life adjustment for him that took a long time. Is it too much to say that, that he played John Calipari going into the draft that year? He and his people did. He and Jerry West. I mean, basically, the Nets had the number eight pick, and they were going to take Kobe Bryant. And the GM of the Nets was John Nash, who just loved Kobe Bryant, and the workouts were amazing. Um, John Calipari was a new coach of the Nets, and the Nets did something interesting. They gave Calipari final personnel set. So 
John Nash was a GM, but a GM with only so much power. And, um, and basically, um, Kobe already has an Adidas deal. He decides, and his people decide, you'd be much better served in L.A. than in East, you know, East Rutherford, New Jersey. So first Kobe calls the net, and he says, you know, I, I really don't want to be near my parents, so I'd, I'd appreciate this. Uh, I don't want you to draft me. And Kobe's agent calls the Lakers. They're also on Calipari. And they're like, if you draft Kobe, he's going to Italy for the year. He won't play for you guys. Then Kerry Kittles' agent, David Falk, calls Calipari and says, if you don't draft Kerry Kittles, who really wants to play with you, I will never have a guy play for you again. Calipari is young and dumb and new and freaking out. He doesn't want his first say, big being rejected by a high school kid. So John Nash is begging him, we got to see Kobe. This is all just bluffing. Obviously, he's going to play for us. And right before the draft, Calipari, they're settled on Kobe Ryan. Calipari makes an announcement. He goes, listen, here's the deal. We have the eighth pick. If Kerry Kittles is there, we're taking Kerry Kittles. If not, we're going with Kobe. And, of course, Kerry Kittles is there at the eighth pick. <laughs> Nets get him. Even Kerry Kittles told me when I interviewed him, I'd rather, I would have drafted Kobe, too. And um, and then uh, Jerry West is doing a gig because this deal lined up with Kerry, with uh, Pamp, uh, Bobcats. Uh, excuse me, for the Charlotte Hornets. And he gets it's Kobe Bryant. It was a brilliant mastermind bit of basketball maneuvering. Knowing what we know about the current Secretary of Education, I took great delight in leading uh, in reading how how horribly Rich DeVos screwed up negotiations with Shaq in Orlando. Because he was a small thinker in a big world. He was a this is the Amway guy. And he number one he thought everyone should be loyal. He's supposed to be a loyal employee. Uh, number two, there's definitely a little bit of racism there. Like, look, I'm, I'm paying these black guys all this money. They could at least show a little, you know, fealty. And um, he just didn't think these guys were worth it. You know, the organization's raking in the dollars, but he doesn't think Shaquille O'Neal is worth the money. So he lowballs them with the opening offer, and the Lakers come in, and they start shedding salaries. They, they trade two guys to Vancouver just to get rid of the money on the books. And um, the Lakers come in, and Jerry West is savvy, and Shaw's agent has always wanted him to go to L.A. He's tired of being a big fish in a small pond. Then the Orlando Sentinel, the newspaper record that does a poll, asking, is Shaquille O'Neal worth $120 million? And the phrasing of that poll is important because nobody's worth $120 million. Right. You know, like, in and of itself, nobody is worth that kind of money. Um, in the basketball world, where DeJuan Howard just got $119 million for the Washington uh, bullets. Yeah, he's worth 120 million. So that poll, which skewed really negative towards Shaq, really pissed Shaq off and wounded him. So when Jerry West antes up with 120 million dollars, and the Magic come in late, and they're sort of after dragging their feet, they're like, "Oh no, we can offer you that too." They see Shaq was like, "Forget it, I'm out of here," and he left for L.A. We're talking with Jeff Perlman here on Downtown. His new book is Three Ring Circus. How important in making this finally all come together, how important was Rick Fox to the mix? I love that question. I thought you were going to say Phil Jackson. Rick Fox is great. Rick Fox is a guy who tried his best to understand Kobe. A lot of guys were impelled by Kobe, and at times Rick was, but he really tried his best. They both spoke a ton. They both had international backgrounds. Um, yeah, I, you know, Fox only came to the Lakers. He was supposed to stay with Boston, and he was kind of a he wasn't a star with Boston, but he was their best player on some really bad teams. And when Rick Pitino was hired, the first thing that Pitino told him is, um, we're going to build around you. And then at the last minute, he pulled the offer so they could sign Travis Knight 
instead of Brooke Fox. So Fox had really nowhere to go. They signed with the Lakers for a minimal amount of money. And Jess was invaluable as a leader, as an orchestrator, as a triangle offense, as a disciplined player. Uh, and But the Lakers did really well this era. There were a lot of uh, Rick Foxes, Robert Orange, Derek Fisher, and Derek Harper, and John Sally, and J.R. Reed, and Ron Harper, and Horace Grant. And they just brought, they just brought in a lot of smart, savvy role players, maybe a year or two past their prime, Brian Shaw types, but who were going to be able to help weather the storm of this year in the two superstars. One of my favorite characters in the book because, well, much like the players, you, you can't help but like him, even if he was driving them crazy with his talking, was Coach Del Harris. Oh, I love Del Harris. I went to see him in Dallas. He was a coach really before Phil. I mean, Kurt Rambis is an interim coach. You know, Del Harris was just a guy from middle America, very conservative and button-up shirt. and had. He looked 70 when he was 30. And... <laughs> He knew basketball like nobody's business. Like, there's no reason to think uh, Phil Jackson had any better basketball knowledge than Del Harris. In fact, he probably didn't. Um, but Del Harris had one fatal flaw. It was he just talked and talked and talked too much. And maybe that worked back in the day. Um, maybe when he was with Milwaukee, you know, Sidney Moncrief is willing to listen. Shaq and Kobe in that era, they were not. They just weren't. Um, and he went on and on and on and on and on. The players started to tune them out. The clan actually could not stand playing for him. Um, and ultimately what happened is, uh, the players made it clear that it wasn't working and that kind of led to Phil Jackson, but I love Dal Harris. I really do. You did a wonderful job of chronicling uh, what Phil Jackson learned from first from Red Holtzman and then, uh, beating the bushes in the CBA. I actually interviewed Phil when his Albany patroons were here playing. I think it was Billy Ray Bates and the main lumberjacks back in the CBA oh, days. Nice. But that was that was a great learning experience for him in a fairly low-pressure situation. First, I want to say two things. Number one, the fact that you were able to drop a Billy Ray Bates name reference into this interview means you should get paid triple this year. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to fight for that. I mean, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, no, no charge. And uh, I only take 10% as your agent. And um, <laughs> um, I think his time, I, I talked a lot when I was with Phil Jackson about Albany and the CBA, and I freaking... I love that time period. Like he was driving the team bus because there was the most leg room. <laughs> right. And at one point he had to renegotiate his contract to get more to his per diem. And he ended up getting $3 more per day for his per diem when he was a coach of the Albany Patroons. It's just this awesome, <laughs> quaint little time period. And if you remember the names that came through that league, there were a lot of like Todd Murphy's and Tony Campbell's and Michael Ray Richardson's like good NBA players who just sort of needed a shot or a second or a third chance. And that's really where Phil Jackson, I think, learned a lot about how to deal with players and how to navigate the world of professional basketball as a coach, not as a player. Kobe and the triangle, though, were, were not exactly a match made in basketball heaven in those early days. No, it wasn't really made to be. You know, um, when Phil started coaching the balls after Doug Collins was fired, he just, you know, he told Michael Jordan, he was basically like, look, man, you can, you can average 34 for the rest of your career and we can be an eight seed or you can try this system that gets more people involved, average 28, and we might be winning championships. Um, that was the appeal of Phil Jackson when he arrived in L.A., that he had these six rings as a coach, and they did it with Michael Jordan and Scotty Pippen. And I think Kobe wanted it to work, and I guess it did, it did work, and it went three titles. Um, but Kobe was just an eternal... There was always a guy trying to play the triangle and also trying to shoot 25 times at the same time. <laughs> And those are not things that go together very well. And he used to drive teammates crazy because he just, 
he shot a lot and he broke down the triangle a lot and he had to be talked to a lot. And, uh, he was gifted. There's no doubt. He was a gifted basketball player. And there's, it's understandable that he felt, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. But it was very hard to be his teammate at times. The Shaq-Kobe dynamic is obviously the centerpiece of the story, and it's fascinating. But I was also really interested in the whole relationship between Jerry West, as you describe him, a guy with literally no ego, up against Phil Jackson. He didn't want Phil Jackson there. And that relationship was fraught from the get-go. I mean, if you think about it, it's hard for there aren't that many examples of guys, two people with that level of success brought together mid early career. It's actually really, really unique if you think about it. Like there have been, you know, like Vincent Barty and Tom Landry were on the same coaching staff as assistants. Bill Parcells had Bill Belichick working for him. You know, there are examples of great on the same team. It's very rare that you have two legends joined together well into their careers and who are very set in their ways. And Jerry West was kind of this neurotic, on all the time, hard-driving, um, lives his job without fail, you know, maniac in a great way. He's the best personnel guy in the history of the NBA. And Phil Jackson is this, you know, highly intellectual, kind of aloof, kind of awkward, kind of arrogant. They're both kind of awkward, actually. Um you know, like, guy with six rings. And Wes wanted to stick with uh, Kurt Rambis, who'd been the intro coach. Jerry Bosch very much wanted to go Jackson. It was really awkward and really uncomfortable. There was this one moment when uh, Jerry West walks into the locker room when he thought he could after a game, and Phil Jackson's still talking to the players, and he's trying to Jerry West to get out. It's probably the most embarrassing Jerry West ever was as a professional, that moment. And I actually think a lot of ways that led to the beginning of the end with Jerry West, not in a malicious way, but he just kind of realized like this team wasn't his team anymore. This organization wasn't his organization anymore. And he probably needed to move on. You spent uh, some pretty good time out in Montana with Phil Jackson. Did he suggest a book for you to read? I don't think he did actually. That's <laughs> so funny. We did talk about books, but I don't think he suggested a book for me to read. If I would have read it, if he did that. When it I all... know uh, he loved uh he loved Motorcycle Diaries, and I actually bought that book. And I, I, I hate to say this because I have a book coming out. I couldn't really get through it. It wasn't my favorite book. <laughs> when it all fell apart, there there's so many stories about how it all broke down. I think my favorite one, if you don't mind relating it from the book, is the story of the phone call Kobe got from his new teammate, Karan Butler. Oh, boy. <laughs> so, you know, they make the trade, and Karan Butler is one of the three players along with uh, Lamar Odom and Brian Grant to get from Miami for Shaq. And uh, Karan Butler calls, hey, Kobe, you know, I'm Karan Butler. I'm new on your team, blah, 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 great, blah, blah, blah. Okay. All right, yeah, man, good, good, good. Hang up. <laughs> the next day, Kobe changes his phone number. <laughs> and, I mean, if you think, like, none of his teammates were invited to his wedding. Very few had even known he was dating. Like, very few had ever been to his house, including Derek Fisher, who was probably his closest teammate friend. He was just a different kind of guy. He was. I remember during the um, Colorado whole sexual assault situation, um, he was asked when he reported back to camp in Hawaii, he was asked, will you confide in your teammates about this? And his response was, why would I? Like he just wasn't, I'm not saying that was good or bad. That wasn't him. He was not that guy. And, and as you point out in the, in the last chapter of the book, in, in terms of that Jessica Matheson case, 
there remains to this day no doubt from the law enforcement people of what went on. Uh, correct. I don't, um, yeah, the guys I interviewed one, and it's, you know, it was a lot easier to write about when you, when Kobe Bryant was alive. Right. Definitely more awkward. But, yeah, I mean, they were convinced that they had Kobe Bryant, and basically, you know, the case was about to go in pretrial, and the woman involved, who really, in her defense, had gone through hell, not just, you know, possibly being raped, but the National Enquirer stalking her, different people stalking her, threats, blah, blah, blah. She basically settled out of court in the civil, uh, you know, in the civil realm, and the case went away. But they're convinced that Kobe Bryant was going to prison. And I'm not, I think they're probably correct. I think he would have too. There's a lot of stuff there. In the pantheon of great NBA teams through the years, Jeff, where do you put this this three-peat Lakers team? You know, it's funny. I don't know. Um, it's a tough one because I don't think we think about them that much. It's sort of weird, considering it wasn't that long ago. We talk a lot about Golden State. We talk a lot about LeBron. We go back to Magic. We certainly go back to Jordan. We go back to Bird. For some reason, I feel like, and maybe it's because Kobe Bryant's career was really divided into two acts. This one, and then the second act when he comes back with Paul Gasol and Lamar Odom. I feel like people don't think of this team with the all-time greats. The fact is they won back-to-back-to-back titles. They had the most dominant big man of his era and the best guard of his era in the same court at the same time, playing for the best coach of all time. So I do think they're one of your top five best dynasties that's ever existed. The book is called Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the Crazy Years of the Lakers Dynasty. Jeff Perlman, this is, as it always is with your books, an absolutely wonderful read. Uh, we had a blast talking with you once again and uh, a memorable introduction that will go down in our, our Hall of Fame for many years to come, I'm sure. I, I believe you've inspired <laughs> my next book. It is called Shaquille O'Neal, The Effing Music Years. <laughs> <laughs> that is a must-read as well. Jeff, we wish you much uh, success with the book. Uh, can people still get uh, autographed book plates from you if they if of they course. reach out? Of course. Just hit me up on Twitter at Jeff Perlman, or you can email me at ngoldfan at glg22 at gmail. And if you show me that you bought the book, I'll happily send you book plates and a bunch of the Laker stickers. Excellent. Get the book. You will love it. Jeff, thank you so much. Good to talk with you again. All right. Thanks a lot. Jeff Perlman on his brand-new book, Three Ring Circus. On downtown the podcast when we come back we'll talk some uh, pop culture for the fall season with our friend colin fleming after this word from cross insurance since its founding in 1954 cross insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in bangor maine into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in new england with the network of offices throughout new england cross insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you your family and your business we are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. One day you'll look to see I've gone For tomorrow may rain, so I'll follow the sun our friend writer Colin Fleming can write and talk about uh, just about anything. If you don't know about his many talents, check out his website at colinfleminglit.com. Subscribe to his Many Moments More blog. He visits every week with us on our radio show downtown. 
And he joins us on the podcast this week to talk about some autumnal pop culture classics, including the Beatles album that produced that song, the album Beatles for Sale. Here's Colin Fleming on Downtown. What I wanted to do was look at some some pop culture work, touchstones of pop culture, at least in, in their own time, that had that fall vibe to them. And it's not so much that they're released in fall, although some of these will be. It's more just that they, they capture autumn either on the screen, as it were, in a couple of cases that we'll discuss, or in somehow in the in the music, embodied in, in, in the music. Maybe it can be a, a, a weariness, for instance, or it can be, in terms of the films, the mise-en-scene, that saturated color. There are films that take place in fall. There are films that when you see them in May, you say, I wish it were fall. And there again, those pop culture touchstones. All right, well, let's begin with a, a slice of horror from 1958. Uh, Horror of Dracula, which uh, really kicked off the preeminence of the Hammer Studios in, in making these great horror films. It's it's the second it's the second Hammer film after Frankenstein. So what had happened is we in the states had this cycle of horror films, courtesy of Universal. So when you think of Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff and the 1931 Dracula and Bride of Frankenstein in 35, the sequel to the to the original Frankenstein and, and the Mummy and all of that stuff, that's that's universal. And somebody in England at Hammer Studios had the idea to, hey, we can do adaptations of these these pictures, which are usually based on right British source material in terms of the novels and Mary Shelley and. Bram Stoker, and we will put them in color because that hasn't been done, and it'll be exciting, and we can sort of really push the limits of what we're allowed to, we think, get away with. And so really the the, the bell cow for the franchise early on was going to be, it was just titled Dracula in, in England, and it became Horror of Dracula here to distinguish it from that Bela Lugosi film is the Peter Cushing, he's uh, the vampire hunter, and uh, Christopher Lee as as Dracula himself. And there is no film, or there hadn't been a film at the time, that looked at all like this film. And it was realistic in some ways with the color, but at the same time, the color in what certain things like blood, for instance, does not look, it looks look like human blood. But that made it more exciting. The, the blood almost looks like impasto on the Van Gogh painting that is just never, ever going to dry. And it was an interesting adaptation because Christopher Lee tried to imbue the Dracula character with a degree of sympathy, like this Macbethian sympathy, because he read the the original Bram Stoker novel and he thought, man, this guy doesn't really want to be doing this thing that he has to do, and I'm going to make him somewhat Sympathetic. So he's not a chatty Dracula, but compared to what Christopher Lee will become in the sequels, he talks. Later, he doesn't really talk. He broods and he bites. <laughs> uh, from there to uh, one of my all-time favorite movies, I love Hitchcock, but we don't often see or we don't see enough of his humor. And 1955's The Trouble with Harry a very funny movie, beautifully shot, and if I didn't already live in New England, it would make me want to move there, particularly in the fall, just you know, as long as 
as long as there are no Harrys to trip over. Yes, it's about a a, a, a man who who dies in the woods, and various people think, damn, my bad. I might have done that. And it's just replete with, with red herrings. And actually, you could think of it this way. I, I think that, that, that the New Heart show was inspired by this film because it's that kind of wackiness where anything goes. And there's an early episode of, of New Heart. I think it's the second episode of, of the first season where there is a, a, a body buried at the Stratford. Right. There, <laughs> in the basement. And that's when we meet the three uh, woodsmen, which I think their build is, is that in, in, in the script. And you could see these characters in this anything-goes world of Hitchcock, where it's actually kind of like Newhart meets Weekend at Bernie's. And what's funny about it, too, is they know these people that's like kind of an older couple, or they're going to become a couple, and uh, two people younger, they're going to become a younger couple. The way they sort of circumvent the law is they're like, just bury him again. They just keep reburying <laughs> his body. And it's like, it, it really, I guess if you were a politically correct mortician, Right now, it would horrify you. Like you'd, you'd, you'd take the Twitter and you'd be like, cancel Hitchcock! Because there's, there's not a lot of um, respect for this cadaver, I would say. And also, no one seems to give a rat's ass about the dead guy. I mean, no. that's where a, lot of the, it's where a lot of the humor is. It's that inappropriate gallows. I'm not just whistling past the graveyard. I have a ragtime band trailing behind me, and we're rocking out. It's just, in Hitchcock, he didn't go to that place. He, we talked about before how his British pictures could be funny, but this was like, what are you doing, man? And the reviews were mixed because critics, they didn't know what to, to make of it. It was, it was so black in some ways, but it was, it was so witty. And you have to have the right kind of person to be a leading man, I think, in any Hitchcock films. And John Forsyth is just terrific in this. You you do you certainly do, and and sometimes like Hitchcock would he would he would get the wrong leading man, or he would get the right leading man and then complain about him afterwards. Like he complained about Jimmy Stewart and Vertigo after the fact. He's like, oh, he's too old. Well, I mean, you cast him. It was like your your decision. So this is true. You have that leading man, but it's it's very much an ensemble piece. You had Edmund. Uh, you have Santa there from Miracle on 34th Street, <laughs> right? Edmund, Edmund Gunn. And it's uh, the scenery, the Vermont setting. I mean, it's just, you don't expect, like, there's that uh, Basil Rathbone and, and Nigel Bruce Sherlock Holmes picture where they're in Canada, Scarlet Claw, which we've talked about. And you don't expect to see those two in Canada. You don't expect to see Hitchcock and Co. In Vermont, right? Like, it's, it's mm. not really a Hitchcock type of setting. I mean, he could be out in the woods. Certainly he's going to be out in the woods with Cary Grant, and, and then there's Mount Rushmore and all that stuff. But the Vermont woods, and, and for me personally, and it's set in fall, and it looks like fall, it's like everything you want visually for an autumnal picture. And uh, that was a reason I was always partial to this movie, because, I don't know what's really better than, like, New England fall. And I think a lot of people in New England, I mean, I'm going to be biased, but a lot of people are going to say Vermont is, is the place out of our 
six states if you if you count Connecticut. <laughs> hey, wait! I was born in Connecticut. Uh, also in this film, the Beaver Jerry Mathers makes an appearance, and it was the screen debut of Shirley MacLaine. I was thinking about the Beaver in this film <laughs> because you have this filmography and you have this career, and this is like your artistic high point, right? Like, yes. It just shows you how luck and chance and whatever. Not that he's not fine in, in the film or whatever. But, like, the one thing he did in his life, really, that, like, you can say that's going to be around. I mean, there's some episodes of, of Leave it to Beaver that have, that have aged really well, don't you think? It's one of those shows that certain episodes of Andy Griffith's show, just the Golden Girls we've talked about, but Leave it to Beaver's an even older show. It's just aged well. But this is really his main thing, is encountering this body, the the beaver i mean right that's like the back of your baseball card that's your like amazing that's the that's the year that you led the league in triple right so well said yes i i I, I always i always just i always wondered what he made of that when he looked surely mclean obviously did lots of other things but like when when jerry mathers looked back on that like did he think like huh that was my kind of like one sort of go for glory artistic moment yeah instead i'm doing still the beaver part three yeah, I mean, I I I love Leave It to Beaver, and I, and too, I think that 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 whole sibling relationship is is so real and so. And we've talked about Eddie Haskell before, and all of that. I mean, I'm not not to downplay the quality of 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 the show, but yeah, this was sort of his uh, his artistic uh, in the sun moment. We're talking with Colin Fleming here on Downtown. Well, let's move to the world of music and uh, the band's second album, just called the band, although some refer to it as the Brown album. Brown's a pretty, pretty autumnal color. Yes. I would say. Oh, yes. Not, not like you no. Know, sometimes we think about like brown and uh, just um, not, not sexy. Kind of like blah. But I mean, even the color of this particular brown looks like um, sort of that, that like rich autumn earth of, of, of the season. So it's, it's always. I mean, but the band in general. They always sound autumnal, don't they? They don't. They're they do. not like, hey, it's 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 June. They always have this sagacity. This this uh, you can read a lot in, in a person's eyes, I think. And certain people, rare people, have like wise eyes, or you might call them old eyes, even if they're not old. They contain this world beyond our world. I feel like that's a fall characteristic, and I feel like the band were, in some ways, the, the, the most fall-based musical unit. And, I mean, you have it in the songs, too, like right. King Harvest, right? I mean, Harvest is, we have Thanksgiving now, but like it was originally all these harvest festivals, which I would have liked a lot more, because you're like, ooh, I'll eat these things from, from the sea, and I'll have this this corn and thank you earth and thank you for not being so hot anymore. It's getting really comfortable out. So it's like this harvest festival of an album and it's, it's bittersweet. It's, it's tinged with the kind of sadness, but it's not like that, that death quality of, of, of winter. I mean, you have up on cripple Creek. It's a pretty playful song, but it's a late September song, not a, my goodness, it's 100 degrees in July song. Well, and you've also got the night they drove old Dixie down. Right. And talk about, like, the whole idea of something coming to an end. And it's interesting that you have these 
these Canadians singing this song of. I wonder if people would 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 try to politicize this right now because it's it's a civil war song. I, I've heard they have. I I saw something just recently, and and I actually thought of you because people were saying, ah, do we need to hear that song anymore? Yes, yes, I believe we do. It's a great song, and it's. It's not a song set in the present day, okay? It's, God, it's a story song. Get over yourselves. Oh, it's like when we discussed Buster Keaton's The General. I mean, he's, he's the most likable, lovable, winsome guy in, in all of American cinema, right? That character, he is a soldier for the South. Many people who were soldiers for the South were people who were no better or worse than than anybody else. That's just that's just the reality of, of, of human nature. And many people who went to war for the North had had slaves in their family previously. And there was nobody who was going to say, you know what, this isn't, I'm going to do something separate. I'm going to buck the sociological trend. It's like nobody does that. So this was a piece of song-based fiction. And I like how you put that because it really is a kind of, well, it's a eulogy, but it's a eulogy in this sonic short story form. And it, it is a lament. It's a tremendously sad song, but it's not like sad in the kind of, oh, wow, I'm, I'm depressed now. It, it's a pay-your-respect song to people who had died and, and homes that had been torn, all sorts of things like that. It wasn't, hooray, uh we used to love slaves, and boo, we don't have them anymore. It's it's nothing like that at all. In fact, you could imagine uh, blue and gray soldiers singing something like this together, even mm-hmm. when it was all over. Absolutely. And uh, finally, we move to uh, uh, one of my favorite Beatles albums, Beatles for Sale, which is such well, it's such a remarkable turn from from the guys who'd been cheery and happy, and she loves you, and I want to hold your hand to this album that uh, well, it's got some great covers, but the original songs, this might be the darkest collection of Beatles originals on any one album. That's an interesting theory. I would say that the second side of A Hard Day's Night, when you think they're at the height of their ebullience, is pretty dark, at least for them. This is pretty tired. This is three in the morning, and I have another thousand words to write, and I'll chug some coffee and keep at it. And if you're good, your talent is still going to come through in that situation. So that's what the Beatles were doing. And this would have been seen if you were someone who was a critical thinker at the time, not that there were a lot of them concerning the Beatles. There was a lot of, like, woohoo going on. It would have been seen as, as a major backslide because you just had this album of, entirely Lennon McCartney's song. So you didn't just have an album entirely of originals, which you, you had throughout their career, of course, later on, but it's the only all Lennon and McCartney album in A Hard Day's Night. And songwriting-wise, that was a peak. That was like the kind of thing that Dylan had to notice. Now they're relying again on the, it's almost an even split of the covers. And the covers are not some of their higher, higher regarded covers. I, I think that they get underrated. I think rock and roll music, the Chuck Berry number, is is one of Lennon's best vocals. I mean, it's he's his he has to sing it passionately, but also as though he is a metronome. He has to fit in a lot of words in a short amount of space, and he has to come to like a full Alexander Ovechkin power stop, right, <laughs> and then go back off 
in the other direction. You know, like, dun, 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 dun. like you know exactly what I'm talking about when I when I say that. So they sound like they have that weariness of fall in their in their sound. And so they were doing these BBC sessions. They did a couple of them, and the host he says to uh, he says he makes the mistake of saying this to Lennon. He's like, because the single I feel fine and she loves you. She's a woman. We're out at the same time. And he said, uh, oh, I ever liked the B side over the A side, meaning the McCartney number. She's a woman. And like, and Lennon's like offended by this because the other song is like, you can tell. And the guy is questioning them about what's changed in life with fame and you can't ride a bus. I thought, I've always thought this was interesting. And, and McCartney says, I like riding a bus. It got me thinking about the role of a bus in the Beatles' career. Just that sort of day-in, day-out activity. They auditioned George Harrison riding on a bus. That's right. And that, that's interesting because other people have downtime. And it just speaks to me that the Beatles never really had downtime. They put that time to use creatively. And I wonder if they weren't like that and they weren't auditioning George Harrison on the bus and Paul McCartney wasn't saying that he misses riding on a bus. Do you get that middle section? in a day in the life mm. where the guy's on a bus. Like, it's just something as simple as a bus, but it comes up over and over and over again in this band's history at, like, these crucial sort of throwaway moments that no one notices. It just struck me as, like, very the human side of art make. And the songs, the original songs on this album, are so introspective for young guys, whether it's uh, Lennon's I'm a Loser, uh, No Reply, or one of my favorite McCartney songs, I'll Follow the Sun. I'll Follow the Sun was one that, it, it doesn't sound like a bright summer sun either, does it? No, no, that's a, that, is a, that is a sun going down at about quarter of five in late October sun. Yeah, it'd be great to get where I'm going before, before it's dark type of sun. And he, and he had that song early on from going back to 1960 when he was uh, recording with, with Lennon in, in, in the bathroom at his, at his family home. But certainly Lennon's, their, their music publisher, had remarked regarding no reply. It's like, this is, this, you're getting better. This is the first one that has like a natural, uh, an arc. It has a beginning, it has a middle and an end. And he, and he meant arc, like not with the chords or anything. It's like you, you've told the story. And if you think about it, it does, it does resolve. You get like this, 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 it's not even a vignette. It's more rounded than a vignette. And then I'm a loser with that sort of deadpan Dylan delivery that you don't see anywhere else. And his voice had changed. So that certainly probably because of all the plot that is, that is, that had been a factor on this album. So you actually had Lennon singing in a different way than he had before, simply because his, his vocal quality had altered. He wasn't a worse singer, but he doesn't sound the same as he does on I Should Have Known Better. Like, mm. that that voice is gone. This is more adenoidal. It's what you're going to get on Help and Rubber Soul and, and, and even on Strawberry Fields Forever. So, like, Strawberry Fields Forever, that sort of gets its gestation period, I would say, in these, these reflective moments. But we don't ever knit up. 1964 in fall 1966, which was when Lennon was really working on on Strawberry Fields. No, and also too, it's interesting that they they celebrate their love of rockabilly with a couple of Carl Perkins covers, and then their own attempt at it, uh, which worked very well, uh, later would become a number one country song for Roseanne Cash. I don't want to spoil the party. Oh, that's just one of the most underrated Beatles songs, don't you think? I that's do. 
that that is a song that is that is that is never talked about harmonically it's rich there there really isn't anything like that during this time period maybe in their in their catalog and it it's uh, it's proto rubber soul it's mm. uh, i'm looking it's i'm looking through you with more melody i would say and it's in this minor key i just it's, it's such a, a great song tucked tucked away that you would never see and then you have another song tucked away during during the sessions, the cover of which would have been a great fit, but also not a great fit, the cover of Little Willie John's Leave My Kid in Alone. And I feel like they almost left that off because it didn't, as they say nowadays, vibe with the rest of everything <laughs> on that. Like it would have it would have awoken things too much. Not that it's a sleepy album, but it's like that October, as you said, Sun Going Down, Beetledom, Unbeetledom album. And and really, they it, it's it's their fall album. And look at the album cover, right? I mean, again, how can you not think Autumn when you see the Beatles <laughs> in Hyde Park? It's a Robert Freeman cover too, and you see the the actually changed color of the leaves yeah. on the ground, and it's like, what time are we going trick or treating, fellas? That's Colin Fleming with us here on Downtown the Podcast. I have to say, I love it when I mean, we talk with Colin about anything, but. His love of the fall matches mine, I think. And, and when he talks about pop culture stuff that, that is perfectly appropriate for the fall season, I really love those conversations. Yeah, so fall is, that's sort of how you tell someone's a New Englander, I yeah. think. If you are a New Englander, odds are fall is your favorite season. Yeah, now I'm not sure I was that crazy about it earlier in the week when it was about 28 <laughs> when I got up in the morning. That was a bit abrupt since it wasn't, technically even fall yet mm. but you know it's it's that time of year and, and look what separates us from the rest of the world i think what makes a new englander a new englander october and april because in both of those months anything's possible yes you have to be prepared for any eventuality it's uh you keep keep all clothing close by right shovel you might need it rake probably lawnmower <laughs> occasionally yeah, I've done that. I've, you've probably done this too. I've mowed the lawn because the snowstorm's coming. Yes. Uh, get that last <laughs> mowing in just before the snow hits. Because yeah, if not, it's going to sit there all winter and it's going to be a mess in the spring. If you're listening to us from another part of the country, this is what you're missing out on. <laughs> Especially in 2020, God knows what October will bring us. For now, we're content to enjoy these last days of September. And our thanks to our guest this week, Colin Fleming, and author Jeff Perlman. And thanks to you for joining us as well. We'll catch you next time here on Downtown, the podcast.